Let's take our Bibles and turn to John chapter 10. John chapter 10. If you don't have a Bible with you this morning, you can borrow one from us. There should be Bibles uh, kind of placed throughout the pews there in the backs of the chairs. And uh, if you uh, have that pew Bible, it's page 843. 843. And if you don't own a Bible, um, we invite you to take that as a gift from us uh, for you to take home so that you can have a copy of God's Word for yourself. John chapter 10, verses 22 through 42 this morning. The Father and Son are one. And we're finally getting back into our expositional study of the Gospel of John here on Sunday mornings, uh, for which I am certainly excited. Our most recent studies in the Gospel uh, is looking at the continued interaction between Jesus and the Jewish religious leaders. And once again, the exchange escalates because of the claims Jesus makes. And these are uh, verifiable claims, as we will see this morning, but it escalates the tension once again. If you're able to, would you please stand with me as I read the Word of God aloud in the New Testament reading. We'll just read verses 22 through 31, though our text extends to the end of the chapter this morning. I'm reading from the English Standard Version. Under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, the Apostle John writes, at, the time, at that time, the Feast of Dedication took place at Jerusalem. It was winter, and Jesus was walking in the temple in the colonnade of Solomon. So the Jews gathered around him and said to him, How long will you keep us in suspense? If you are the Christ, tell us plainly. Jesus answered them, I told you, and you do not believe. The works that I do in my Father's name bear witness about me, but you do not believe because you are not among my sheep. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. I give them eternal life, and they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. I and the Father are one. You may be seated. That is the Word of God in the New Testament reading. May He bless it both in the Old and New. Would you join me once again in prayer? Lord, as we come to this text this morning, we are reminded that Your Holy Spirit who inspired These very words in the original autographs also indwells those of us uh, in this room who are and and who are uh, tuning in via live stream uh, by uh, virtue of uh, regeneration and uh, the gift of the Holy Spirit. He indwells us, and so we now ask that you would open our eyes and our hearts to this text. And we pray for those, Lord, who may be uh, tuning in or sitting here in our midst who do not know you that by your Spirit, and by the conviction of your word, they may turn to Christ this morning. Lord, I pray that you would continue to humble me. pray that you would hide me behind the cross and the empty tomb. And may we only exalt Jesus as a result of our study this morning. We pray this in his name. Amen. There was, uh, in the 1950s, a radio show and then a TV show known as Dragnet. It was revived later on as well, but most of us remember that um, black and white uh, version of the show. The supposed rather famous catchphrase from that show was, just the facts, ma'am. In the interest of truthfulness, 
the reality is this phrase was never actually uttered by the straight-laced Joe Friday. Much to your shock and awe, if you're from that generation, what he actually would say from time to time is, all we want are the facts, or all we know are the facts. The catchphrase, just the facts, was actually spawned from a, a parody of Dragnet. Either way, Sergeant Friday was indicating that the reason for the inquiry was not to get all the periphery information, but rather to get down to the point. What are the facts? All we want are the facts. What any good investigative journalist, or for that matter, and more importantly, a detective will say, is that one cannot know the facts without the details, without the observation of things which lead to the facts. However, those details should lead to the distillation of truth. They should lead to the facts. Let's get down to, sometimes the phrase is brass tacks. What is this all about? Well, without really desiring an answer, but more wanting to catch Jesus in some way to make him stumble, the Jews, in a sense, ask, what are the facts about you, Jesus? That is essentially the question this morning. As a reminder to us what we believe concerning the Son of God, we would agree with the London Baptist Confession that, quote, the Son of God, the second person in the Holy Trinity, being very and eternal God, the brightness of the Father's glory, one of, I'm sorry, of one substance and equal with Him who made the world, who upholds and governs all things He has made, did, when the fullness of time was complete, take upon Him man's nature with all the essential properties and common infirmities of it, yet without sin, being conceived by the Holy Spirit in the womb of the Virgin Mary, the Holy Spirit coming down upon her and the power of the Most High overshadowing her, and so was made of woman of the tribe of Judah, of the seed of Abraham and David, according to the Scriptures, so that two whole, perfect, and distinct natures were inseparably joined together in one person without conversion, composition, or confusion, which person is very God and very man, yet one Christ, the only mediator between God and man. Amen. That is what we believe about the Lord Jesus. This articulation is what we are able to say we believe in hindsight and by way of the Spirit of God opening our eyes to these scriptural truths. Even those who could not articulate these truths in such a way in Jesus' day, but nonetheless believed in Him, are only able to do so, and the same is true of us, because of the work of the Father, Son, and Spirit in their and our hearts. It is by God's work and His design and the way that He reconciles us to Himself by drawing us, as we will see and be reminded of this morning, the work of the Father, Son, and the Spirit, that we are able to believe what we just said we confess. And we see this interaction here between Jesus and the Jewish leaders, and what Jesus tells them may seem fairly obvious to us, but Jesus reminds those with whom he is interacting, and those of us who read it today, that to believe in him requires spiritual intervention, not just observing him. It requires a move of God's Spirit on a dead person's heart. This leads us to our main point. You have this written for you on the back of your uh, worship folder. And for those of you tuning in from home, it should have been emailed to you. 
Here's the main point. The greatest evidence of Christ and His mission cannot save those who are not His sheep. The greatest evidence of Christ and His mission cannot save those who are not His sheep. And we'll see that play out this morning. Not only in what Jesus says here, but as we are reminded of things that He has said earlier in the Gospel of John. So I want us to see this morning three phases of Jesus' response to the Jews questioning of His Messiahship. Three phases of Jesus' response to the Jews' questioning of His Messiahship. Again, these are written for you. You see the first one there is the ludicrous request and the truthful response. The ludicrous request and the truthful response in verses 22 through 30. First, we see the setting in which this all took place. Uh, At the time of the Feast of Dedication, uh, at that time, the Feast of Dedication took place at Jerusalem. It was winter and Jesus was walking in the temple in the colonnade of Solomon. Uh, Really, what this is doing, what what John is doing in, in telling us this is giving us the setting of the place where this entire conversation, if you look previously, if you can remember that long ago when we were in Gospel of John and, and these interactions Jesus was having with these Jewish leaders, uh, this is all where it is taking place. It is taking place at this feast. And, and Jesus is now um, just uh, as a good um, Jewish man walking about to the city uh, preparing for these things. And so he is sort of uh, publicly... Walking around, and the Jews catch him once again, seeking to upset his ministry. And they ask this as they gather around him. You can almost envision the scene. Jesus is just walking about in the, in the colonnade of the temple. And he is now surrounded, as it were, by these Jewish leaders. So they gather around him and said to him, How long will you keep us in suspense? If you are the Christ, tell us plainly. Recall that the Christ, that terminology, the Christ, is equivalent to the understanding of Old Testament Messiah. They are asking him to tell them plainly if he is the long-awaited Messiah of the Old Testament. Carson submits in his commentary that this request is not an attempt to believe but actually an attempt to attack. John Chrysostom, the church father, says, When the works cry aloud, they seek words. And when the words teach, they, then they betake themselves to works, ever setting themselves to the contrary. In, in other words, what Chrysostom is saying is that um, it doesn't matter what Jesus does or what he says. Uh, they always want the opposite. And regardless of what he does or what he says, they, um, in wanting the opposite, will never be satisfied. Jesus then gives them two irrefutable facts. Verse 25, Jesus answered them, I told you, and you do not believe. The works that I do in my Father's name bear witness about me, but you do not believe because you are not among my sheep. Jesus says he has already told them, And he also tells them that the works he does in his Father's name bear witness about him. Now, truthfully, in so many words, Jesus has not said, I am the Messiah, uh, as he did with the Samaritan woman and the blind man. And actually, even in those cases, he didn't use those words. He says, basically, 
I am, I am he, I am the one that you are looking for. But all that he has said and done point to the fact that he is the Messiah. That is what his words mean there. I have told you in so many words that this is true. But also through what I have done in concert with what my father is doing. But this is not the only title that he bears. Messiah, the Christ, is not the only title which he bears. He clearly continues to indicate that he is the Son of God as well. This is especially seen in the language of calling God his Father, a point that comes to a head in this conversation. Jesus then sort of puts a nail in this coffin, if you will, about the reason that they cannot believe. They cannot believe because they are not of his sheep. Look at it again. But you do not believe because you are not among my sheep. No amount of empirical evidence is enough to win them. They are not those, in fact, who God is drawing. Remember John chapter 6 and verse 44. No one can come to me unless the Father draws him. Of course, the context of this conversation is just after Jesus has spoken about the sheep. Look up at chapter 10 and verse 14. I am the good shepherd. I know my own and my own know me. Just as the Father knows me and I know the Father. And I laid down my life for the sheep. And I have other sheep that are not of this fold. I must bring them also and they will listen to my voice. So there will be one flock and one shepherd. And he says to them, Uh, reiterating this point in verse 27, My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. This is condemning language. You do not believe, not because there is not enough evidence, because there is enough evidence. You do not believe because you are spiritually dead, and you are not of my sheep. Jesus continues to use this language of, of, of sheep and uh, how he cares for them in, in the following verses. Look at verse 27 again and then continuing on. My sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me. And, and he has just clearly said to them, you are not of my sheep. To my sheep, verse 28, I give them eternal life. And they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father, who has given them to me, is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. I and the Father are one. The the sequence here, as we understand this in the Gospel of John, and, and really throughout the rest of Scripture, is that if someone is drawn by the Father, he is given to the Son, they are His, and no one can take them away from the Son or the Father. Notice what Jesus is doing here in the context. This is about the work that the eternal Son is sent to do in to the world. All this is in concert with the Trinitarian plan. If you want a really good uh, summary of that, look at Ephesians chapter 1, verses 1 through about verse 15. And see the work of the Father, the work of the Son, and the work of the Spirit. Not individuals, but persons that... Um, are in the Godhead, one God, three persons, in concert with each other, as one in essence, as we'll see, doing what they would do to bring mankind into reconciliation with God. This is what Jesus 
means when he says he and the Father are one. In one sense, we understand this of Jesus being um, as the same essence as the Father and the Spirit. Jesus can claim to be God. Now, certainly in his incarnation, he is, as we know, the God-man. But eternally, he has existed forever and always as the eternal Son of God. Uh, As if we would need to turn there, but please do turn to John chapter 1. Be reminded of what John has set up for us as a foundation of understanding this in his gospel. Remember verses 1 through 18 we call the prologue. This really sort of lays out the outline for us of the many things that uh, John will be displaying throughout his gospel. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And and we, we... get sort of the summation of this and what Jesus says here when He says that He and the Father are one. In the beginning was the Word. There was never a time where the Word was not. And the Word is, by the way, the Son. If you look at verse 18, it tells us that. But the, the Word was with God. In the language here, as we've discussed in the past, is a face-to-face relationship. Now, that's anthropomorphic. That's the idea of something that we have to think of in human terms that is not true of the eternal Godhead. There is no face-to-face to have, but it is the idea of the closeness. John, again, in chapter 1 says, the only God who is at God's side has made God known. This idea of being at His side. And then we see, and the Word was God. When Jesus says in John chapter 10, and you can turn back over there, I and the Father are one, it is capturing this idea. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. There was never a time where He was not. And He has always been co-equal in essence with the Father. So we understand the, the trueness of The essence, we understand the oneness in purpose. Recall the words of Jesus when He says He does all that He sees the Father doing. The Father draws and gives to Jesus. Jesus gives them eternal life. This is what we're reading here. And they are in uh, both the hand of the Father and in the hand of Jesus. And no one can snatch them from the hand of either because they are one. Do you understand what Jesus is doing here? We oftentimes take John chapter 10 and verse 30 out of context. And, and uh, rightly so in some sense to say that Jesus is saying here that He and the Father are one. But what is, what, how does He put this on display before He makes that statement? He says, uh, I give you eternal life. Uh, you cannot be snatched from My hand. You cannot be snatched from the Father's hand because we are one in essence and in purpose. The Father draws and gives to Jesus. Jesus gives eternal life and they are in both the hands of Jesus and in the hand of the Father and no one can snatch them from either because they are one. Church Father Christosom again, as though he had said, I did not assert that on account of the Father no man plucketh them away, as though I were too weak to keep the sheep, for I and the Father are one. Do you see? He's saying, uh, it is not that Jesus is saying, I can't keep you, the Father must keep you. No, the Father and I are one and we both keep you. Speaking here with reference to power still, um, uh, Speaking from Christosom here, for concerning this was all his discourse. And if the power be the same, 
it is clear that the essence is also. What is Christism saying? They are one in essence. They are one in purpose. Even with this oneness of purpose, the Jews understand that Jesus cannot be one in purpose without also claiming to be God himself. But let me pause for a moment and just give a a word of encouragement to those of us who are in Christ here this morning. Brothers and sisters, you are secure in the hands of the Father, the Son, and the Spirit. No one can snatch you from the powerful hand of the triune God. No one can. That means the devil cannot touch you. He can accuse, but he cannot touch. He may touch in the sense of physical, like in the sense of Job. God may allow that, but he cannot pluck you from the hand of the Father. You are secure in the hands of God. Rest there. Dear Christian, rest in that. You cannot sin your way out of the hand of God. And we should desire to obey for the sake of worship and because He has done so much and we are grateful for the love that He has shown us through Christ Jesus. But that obedience does not keep you in the hand of God. Jesus does. God does. The Spirit does. The great three-in-one, our great God and His eternal plan keeps you in the palm of His hand. Rest in that. But the Jews understand exactly what Jesus is doing here. So secondly, we see the extreme reaction in the surprising reply, verse 31. The Jews said, okay, cool, Jesus, we'll talk to you later. No. They picked up stones what does it say? Again, to stone him. They seek again to stone him. This is not the first time. Recall the conversation in John chapter 8. Turn back there with me, if you would, please. John chapter 8. So important for us to see the flow of the text here and where it has been and where it is going. So, to summarize a bit, before we get to verse 48 here, essentially Jesus has told them that they are children of the devil. Very much the same thing as saying, you are not of my sheep, you are not of my uh, fold. And they, uh, in that, say to him, verse 48, Are we not right in saying that you are a Samaritan and have a demon? In other words, you are not... A true Israelite, and in fact, the things that you do, you do by the power of demons. I mean, this is this is um, not only a a slight against Jesus. This is a slight against the Father and the Spirit, by whom He has said He is doing these things. You're not of the stock of Israel. You're not only not a, the son of God. You're not even the son of David. You're not even of the tribe of Judah. You're a Samaritan. You're a half breed. We don't know who your father is. Certainly wasn't Joseph. He adopted you. You don't do your work by God's by God's spirit. You are a demon-possessed man. So, so that's the level here, okay? Verse 49, Jesus answered, I do not have a demon, but I honor my father, and you dishonor me, I should say. 
Yet I do not seek my own glory. There is one who seeks it, and he is the judge. Truly, truly, I say to you, if anyone keeps my word, he will never see death. You see in the midst of this even how Jesus is pleading with them to to hear his words and to believe them. The Jews said to him, verse 52, Now we know you have a demon. Abraham died and is as did the prophets, yet you say, if anyone keeps my word, he will never taste death. In other words, if you're saying that keeping God's word is what keeps you alive, Abraham is not alive, he has died. Are you greater than our father Abraham who died and the prophets that died? Who do you make yourself out to be? Jesus says, great question. Jesus answered, if I glorify myself, my glory is nothing. It is my father who glorifies me, of whom you say he is our God. But you have not known him. I know him. If I were to say that I did not know him, I would be a liar like you. But I do, not, but I do know him, and I keep his word. I love this. Your father Abraham rejoiced that he would see my day. He saw it and was glad. What was Abraham's hope? Abraham's hope was in the coming Messiah. The very question they ask him in our text today, if you are the Christ, tell us plainly. He's telling them plainly here, Abraham saw my day and rejoiced in it and was glad. What day is he speaking of? The day of the coming of Messiah. Abraham believed that and it was counted to him as what? Righteousness. So the Jews said to him, verse 57, You are not yet 50 years old, and have you seen Abraham? Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. One of the clearest declarations of Jesus comparing himself to the Old Testament idea of Yahweh the name of God, before Abraham ever existed, I existed eternally. That's essentially what Jesus says. Oh, okay, Jesus, cool. We're good with that. No. Verse 59, so they picked up stones to throw at him. But Jesus hid himself and went out of the temple. This is part two of that. Back in John 10. Jesus answered them, as they have stones in their hand, by the way. As S. Lewis Johnson says, these aren't little pebbles. These are stones they had to carry, according to the Greek language here. So big stones meant to kill. Here they come. Jesus answered them, I have shown you many good works from my Father. Of which of them are you going to stone me? The Jews answered him, it is not for a good work that we are going to stone you, but for blasphemy, because you being a man... Make yourself out to be God. It is not for a good work, they say. They could not deny the good works. Isn't that interesting? What have they done previously to explain away the good works? You do these things by what? By demons. They can't, which, by the way, that makes perfect sense, right? Demons are always doing good things. Right? It's not for a good work that we stone you. They cannot deny the good works of Jesus. They have seen them with their own eyes. They they have to come up with an excuse to say that they're not of God. It is for blasphemy, which, by the way, is a reason in the Old Testament law to stone someone to death. And is ultimately the reason that Jesus is put upon the cross. Though Pilate says, I find nothing wrong with this man. And they yelled out all the more, crucify him, crucify him. It is for blasphemy because you being a man make yourself to be God. 
So Jesus says, okay, you're going to use the Old Testament against me. Let me use the Old Testament in response to you. He invokes the Word of God from Psalm 82. And and this really is a very difficult passage to understand, but um, it is, I think, understandable for us as we see what Jesus is doing here. Again, we have to take things in their context. Look at verses 34 through 38. Jesus answered them, Is it not written in your law? So, So they're saying... We're going to stone you for blasphemy. And so Jesus says, oh, we're talking law here. Well, let's take the law and discuss it. Is it not written in your law? Now I lost my place. Ah, I said, you are gods. If he called them gods to whom the word of God came, and scripture cannot be broken, do you say of him who the Father consecrated and sent to the world, you are blaspheming because I said I am the Son of God? Now, certainly, this is a place where we find um, Jehovah's Witness and, and Mormons coming to a text and saying, see, Jesus isn't claiming to be the same as God because he references Psalm 82 here. But let's seek to understand this the best that we can. Um, Walt Kaiser and the editors of Hard sayings of the Bible, no surprise this is found in there. They say this, In John 10.34, when accused of blasphemy, our Lord appealed to Psalm 82.6 by saying, Is it not written in your law, I have said you are gods? In so doing, Jesus was demonstrating that the title could be attached to certain men to whom the word of God came. And therefore, there could not be any prima facie or on-the-face objection lodged against his claim to be divine. There was a legitimate attachment of the word Elohim to those people who had been specifically prepared by God to administer his law and word to the people. So, just to distill that down very briefly, it is saying that God is the one who assigns those who would be judges and those who would carry out uh, the specifics of the law. And in Psalm 82.6, those are called gods, little g, gods. Nowhere does God attribute to them the name Yahweh, as is his name. But they are representatives of God. Just as we can see in Romans chapter 13, God appoints people in government, whether good or evil. He appoints people in government, and they are there by God's design for the sake of administering his law. That's what it says in Romans 13. Psalm 82 and verse 6, same idea there. They are to bear the sword, and there are those who are called this by God. Here's something interesting as a side note. Jesus never says that he is Elohim. That's the word here that's used for God. Um, Elohim is kind of a generic term for God in the Old Testament. So Jesus never declares himself to be Elohim to those people who had... I'm sorry, um, uh, he, he does say, I am, as we just saw previous. And he is called the Lord by his followers. He says things like, before Abraham was, I am, as we just saw. His followers call him Lord, which both of those indicate and bring up the idea of Old Testament Yahweh language. Carson helpfully additionally says this, as Jesus uses the text, the general line of his argument is clear. The scriptures prove that the word God is legitimately used to refer to others than God himself. If there are others whom God, the author of scripture, can address as God and sons of the Most High, i.e. sons of God, on what biblical basis should anyone object when Jesus says, I am God's son? Notice sort of the what Jesus is doing is sort of 
lessening that. He's, he's, I'm not even saying I am God, though ultimately he is saying he is God. He's saying I am God's son. The argument gains extra force when it is remembered that Jesus is the one whom the Father set apart as his very own and sent into the world. The idea is, in Psalm 82 is that the judicial exercise of humans is given by God, and they are small g gods who make judgments under Yahweh's rule. By the way, I ended Carson's quote above. Why then would the Jews have any problem with Jesus calling himself the Son of God? This explains the way in which Jesus intends for them to understand the phrase, the Father and I are one. They are one in essence. And Jesus is speaking here of the truth that though he and the Father are one in essence, he is also distinct from the Father in terms of his role as Son. The Father is always the Father. The Son is always the Son. The Son is sent from the Father and does what he sees the Father doing. Do you see how this all culminates together in what we have studied previously, said so that was a long time ago, Jason. I don't have to go back and listen to those sermons. But, but uh, this is what, if you go back and read, this is what he's been saying. When he says, I see and I do all that I see my Father doing. And even this does not convince them. Verse 39. Oh, I'm sorry, I, I need to keep reading here. Uh, I, uh, th- this is what he, he does here, um, give us this answer. Uh, verse 36, Do you say of him who the Father consecrated sin in the world, you are blaspheming because I said I am the Son of God? If I am not doing the works of my Father, then do not believe me. But if I do them, even though you do not believe me, believe the works that you may know and understand that the Father is in me and I am in the Father. Here, uh, here again, we see this appeal of Jesus for them to believe. But this is not good enough. Jesus explains the I and the Father are one, that the Father is in me and I am in the Father. But again, they sought to arrest him, and he escaped from their hands. In spite of his evidence that he's given through what he has said and what he has shown, his explanation that the terminology can be used rightly, even though he escalates it to an understanding that they ought to see him as one in essence and purpose with the Father. They seek to kill him. They come after him. And yet, there are those who believe in him, as we see in our final point three, the lasting remembrance of John's testimony. Look at verse 40. So he escaped their hands, and verse 40, he went away again, across the Jordan to the place where John had been baptizing at first. And there he remained. This seems to indicate that Jesus goes to a place where there are those who are looking to understand who Jesus is. Remember the words of John, the baptizer, you know, um, thinking about one who is greater coming, baptizing them because the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Indicating that by words such as, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the, of the world. This is, this is John's message and this is what his baptism was an indication of. Their testimony is that John had testified about him. Look at verse 41. And many came to him and they said, John did no sign, but everything that John said about this man was true. 
John did no sign. In other words, John the baptizer did no miraculous work, yet everything that John said about Jesus was true. Every testimony of John that he had given about his cousin was true. And it culminates in that language that I just gave a minute ago. Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Turn back over to John chapter 1 again. So much of, again, sort of this outline in the prologue that John gives us is found throughout the rest of the gospel. Look at verse 6. John 1 and verse 6. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to bear witness about the light that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but he came to bear witness about the light. What a beautiful tribute to John the baptizer who said what? I must decrease, but he must increase. He is not the light. He came to bear witness about the light. And here we see the fruit of that witness. Look again back at John 10. What what are the words of the people to whom Jesus comes? John did no sign, but everything that John said about this man was true. Notice the response of those who remember John's testimony. And many believed in him there. Many believed in him there. How does God draw people to himself? John chapter 6. None will come to me unless the Father draws him. You are not of my sheep. My Father gives them to me and they know me and they follow my voice. What is, what is the instrument that God uses to draw people to himself? Well, firstly, I must say he uses his word. He uses the truth of his word. God reveals who he is and who we are in his word. And what we understand when we grasp that is that we're in trouble. The self-righteous don't understand that, as is evidenced by the Jewish religious leaders. They're self-righteous. We don't need to hear this from you, Jesus. We know God, and he says, no, you don't. In fact, you're children of the devil. God uses his word, but he also uses earthen vessels, does he not? You and me. He uses the conduit of our proclamation of the good news to draw people to himself. Who is John? John was the wild-eyed, crazy guy from the wilderness who wore camel's hair and ate locust and honey. Sounds like a great meal. He comes declaring that Jesus is who? The Christ. The Son of God who takes away the sin of the world. Talking about John the baptizer, of course. That's us, dear ones. We are to witness to the world. We are to bear testimony to the world who Jesus Christ is. Many believed in him there. You know, we don't measure our success in proclaiming the gospel or in evangelism by numbers because we don't know. John, John the baptizer didn't know this. He just simply proclaimed he was dead. 
But his testimony continued on. I don't want to be remembered as great. I want Jesus to be remembered. I want the the fact that the gospel was proclaimed from this pulpit and from the people in this church to be remembered. I can't remember who that person was who said that to me that one time, but I do remember that they told me that I needed to turn from my sin and trust in Jesus. There are only two responses to who Jesus claims to be, rejection or belief. For those of us who are in Christ, what is our testimony about Christ? Are we willing to stand boldly against those who want to have a Jesus of their own making rather than who the Scriptures, all the Scriptures, show Him to be? It is not up to us to rescue Jesus from ridicule. It is up to us to proclaim the Scriptures and how they proclaim who He truly is. We must boldly proclaim the truth no matter the cost of who Jesus is. It will cost you your friends, your family perhaps, But God does the work. He's the one who draws men. Be faithful to proclaim through your life and through your words who Jesus is. Secondly, are you Christian resting in Him? He is the Good Shepherd. He, the Father, and the Spirit are working to persevere you to the end. It is not you who keeps you in the palm of His hand. It is His power that keeps you. Your obedience is a worshipful response to Him as the shepherd who keeps you and cares for you. Your obedience is just as much a part of His grace as the same grace is that drew you to Him. Rest in Him, dear Christian. You cannot keep yourself in. Only the triune God can do that. Your obedience is because of gratitude and because it brings glory to God. And and honestly... It brings joy to your heart, even though sometimes it doesn't feel that way. It does. If you're struggling to rest in him, please let me or one of the other elders know. We want to come alongside of you and encourage you in your walk with him. And lastly, for those who have rejected Christ, my call to you today is that you recognize who Christ is. It is he who gives his life for the sheep. He lived a perfect life died a death that you deserve and now calls unto you to believe in him. Some might say, how can I be one of the sheep? How can I know if he is drawing me? The way you know from a human perspective is that you turn from your sin and trust in him. I too invite you to talk with me and know that you are his through the truth of this good news. How do you know that you're drawn? Repent and believe today. Would you pray with me? Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, we praise you this morning for your great love and great grace and mercy. God, we love you because you have first loved us. And if we are in Christ, we are loved in a very specific way as the sheep of your pasture. Thank you, Lord, for making us your own. We did not deserve it, just as Christ did not deserve the justice upon the cross. And yet, Lord, in mercy and grace, you drew us unto yourself. You not only cleared the debt that we owed, we come to you with demerit. You not only forgave us of our sins, you gave us the righteousness of Christ. And you call us your own. Lord, help us to rest in that. There are those that are struggling today to rest in your grace. 
I pray that not only these words, Lord, but the words of encouragement that we can give them, that, that, that they would rest, that we can, Lord, they would come to us and we can come alongside of them. Lord, help us to be bold proclaimers of the good news. Yes, we must live in obedience, Lord, and perhaps someone might notice something different about us, but we must proclaim with our mouths the good news of Jesus Christ. Let us decrease and let Jesus increase. May we be forgotten and only Christ be exalted and his name remembered. So, Lord, I pray for those who may be in our midst or may be tuning in who do not know you, that today would be the day that they would turn from their sin and trust in Christ alone. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.